We are in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 this morning, looking at verses 5 through 9, <clears throat> as Paul lays out his, uh, uh, his parallel structures here, talking about what it means to be submitted to one another in the body of Christ, and then zeroing in on three specific relationships, that between husbands and wives, uh, children and their parents, and now between masters and slaves. This, in many respects, uh, finishes this particular portion of Paul's letter, because as you know, uh, he now begins at verse 10, after uh, when we pick it up again in the fall, uh, to look at uh, the nature of spiritual warfare, the provisions of God for us in the, uh, the great struggle of our everyday lives. But this morning, it's uh, masters and slaves. And Paul writes this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us an understanding and an application of this This text to our everyday lives, Uh, it seems so clear to us that uh, slavery is uh, is not in force in our own nation in this day, and yet we know that your word speaks to us in very real terms about the lives that we live. So help us to see that, make that connection. More importantly, live in light of its truth and apply it to that area of our lives where it might, in uh, in a most beautiful way, showcase Jesus Christ, for we ask it in his name. Amen. When we hear the word slavery, I think probably every one of us automatically uh, thinks about America's sordid past. You think about the 1800s in particular. And uh, and I suppose that's uh, that's quite normal, because it was a sordid past, and there's no escaping that. Uh, slavery, as you know, was, uh, was an awful institution, and slaves were, uh, were punished with uh, uh, basically uh, at the whim of, uh, of the slave owner, and no matter uh, whether it was a, a big deal or a small deal. I mean, they basically owned this person, and they were free to treat them as they, uh, they wanted. And so they punished them often, because they felt as though that was the best way to keep them underfoot. Get out of them what they wanted to get out of them. Flogging was almost an everyday event. Happened all the time. The women who were uh, uh, used uh, quite often as domestic uh, servants were often uh, exposed to uh, sexual abuse by their overseers. It's not unusual for them to bear children of the landowner. And who could say a word? Nothing. You couldn't speak against that. If, uh, if a person was believed, if a slave uh, stole something or was believed to have uh, purposely sabotaged a piece of plantation equipment, 
It was not unusual for them to lose a hand or a foot or an ear. Unless, of course, the slave owner didn't want to lose that part of their body, so they continued to get the work out of him. Find some other miserable way to harm him. If they rebelled, or if they killed anyone, they were tortured and killed in the most gruesome ways possible. So when we think about slavery, our minds go back to those kinds of abuses in our own nation. And abuses they were. But that was not the character of slavery at the time that Paul wrote. Certainly, it had its sordid past too, but by the time Paul wrote this this letter, slavery had taken on a very different character in the Roman Empire. Slaves were generally well-treated. In fact, under the first, uh, uh, during the first century, Roman slaves were often set free by the time they were 30. In fact, so many of them were set free that Caesar Augustus had to issue a decree because of becoming an economic problem to have all these, these people out in the workplace but not working for a master, but actually beginning their own businesses. Up to 50% of people who were slaves were free by the time they were 30. You must also understand that being a slave did not indicate that you were some part of a, of a lousy social class. Certainly in America that was the case. But you couldn't tell a slave from a freeman in the Roman Empire neither by dress nor by the things that they did. A slave could be a CEO, could be a salesman, could be a custodian, could do almost anything. Sometimes they lived in the house of their master, sometimes they had their own place. I mean, slaves, people sold themselves into slavery in the Roman Empire in order to get into Roman society. It was like, you know, a way to get yourself in the door. And once you were in your opportunities increased exponentially. And so it was just a, it was, it was a way in which business was conducted, if you will. So Roman slavery and slavery in the United States during the 19th century were very, very different practices. And this is really important because the, the, the general idea of slavery that we bring to a text like this doesn't help us at all. What we need to see here is that slavery in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul wrote was more like a business arrangement. It was more, if you will, like the relationship between a boss and a worker, an employer and an employee, the master and the slave. There was an economic thing going on as well as a relational thing going on. And they both wanted it to work. Nevertheless, Paul recognizes that as Christians, these people, whether they're masters or slaves, can begin to inject into those relationships something of real substance and meaning and and ethical change that could elevate it even above what it was. And so he writes these very important words. And because you and I, every one of us nearly, serves somebody or has someone serving underneath us in some capacity 
These are very important words for us to hear. Paul begins with the duties of the slaves, of the employees, if you will, in verses 5 through 8. And he summarizes them, I I suppose you could summarize them in four particular words. The first one is respect. Now, if you're old enough, you might remember Aretha Franklin's great song, Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Tell you what it means to me, right? Okay? Jeff will finish it for you later if you want to hear it. But the, the basic song was, Aretha wanted respect. And she lays out in her song what that looks like. This is what I believe respect is for me. And this is precisely what Paul does here. Paul tells us what it means to respect masters, those who are over us in the Lord for whatever reason. He says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. Now, we've seen that when Paul uses this language, he generally doesn't mean that we're supposed to sort you know, cower and, and, and be, uh, be really afraid because the boss is coming. What he says is that we are to, to respect those who are over us, those who are our masters, those who have a position or authority above us. God's word says that we're to do it, not because they've earned it necessarily, Some people come to those positions without having earned it. You and I know that. But simply because they have been given that position by God. The authority is theirs and vested in them by God. And so we're to respect them. If you've ever been around uh, soldiers or sailors or airmen or anybody in the service, you recognize that Immediately, that when a, uh, when a private or a, or a lieutenant even happens to walk by a colonel, what do they do? They salute and crisply, right? Now, the, the colonel may go, okay, his may not be quite so crisp. He's, he's higher up in the food chain. But the lieutenants, the sergeants, the NCOs, the privates, they know. You salute the position. And the first thing that you learn is check the boards. See their rank. And if they're above you, there's a respect that is due them because they have rank. And that's what Paul says is true of us as employees. We are to respect those who are above us precisely because They have that rank. Now, this isn't easy for us because, well, primarily because it's hard for us to separate the person in the position. And we tend to think, you know, gee, that person doesn't respect me or boy, that, you know, that that foreman is really stupid, doesn't know the job. You know, I could do it better. You know, we can find a thousand ways. A teacher's really dumb. They don't know what they're talking about. They bore me. You know, so we can think of a thousand reasons why we should not respect that person. Because somehow the person themselves have not lived up to our expectations. Paul says that's not the issue. That we respect them and show them due respect precisely because God has given them 
that position over us. But we hate that. We hate being under any authority that we think isn't earned, isn't due. If they're not smarter than us, if they're not greatly more experienced and wiser than us, we don't want to respect them. We resist it. We resent it. And the problem is, is that when we do that, no matter who that person is, the scriptures say that we violate what God has told us to do, which is to respect those who are over us. And in disrespecting them, we disrespect and sin against God who has established them as our authority. And in that, we miss the blessing that God has for us. Can you imagine being, being under the thumb of someone who's stupid? You might have to humble yourself. Submit yourself. And learn some of those lowlier, more difficult issues of the soul that Jesus himself learned as well. So respect, Paul says, is the order of the day. The next word we could uh, look at is sincere. Paul's next point is that we should conduct ourselves sincerely in the sincerity of your heart. And this really does complement the word respect. Now sincerity, as you know, is an interesting word. We've looked at this word before. It comes from uh, two Latin words, sine, meaning without, and sera, meaning wax, without wax. And all of that comes from the fact that in that day, there was a lot of people. There were a lot of people who made pottery. You know how it is. It's not an exact science, as it uh, might be more today. And sometimes pots came through with cracks in them. And, you know, these people didn't want to throw out their their uh, their work because work was money. The material they didn't have the way of recycling it the way we do to just grind it up and reuse it. And so they would take wax and they would press it into the cracks so that you could almost really not tell. In a normal everyday usage, you could have a cracked pot full of wax and you'd never even know it. But savvy buyers would come along and they'd go shopping on a sunny day. And they'd pick that pot up and they'd hold it up to the light because where the wax was, it would be lighter. And they could see that there were cracks. And so those who were really good at fashioning pots would begin to label their pots sine sera, without wax. Meaning they were sincere. These things were solid. And that's where we get the word from. Even though that's the way it's translated in our English translation, however, that is not the word that Paul uses. Paul begins there. He begins with the idea that we ought to be sincere in our working, but he adds to it this, this word that means to, to do it liberally, really generously, just kind of overflow in our sincerity. So it's not just a matter of being sincere but almost being bubbly in it. Just profuse. And he says we're to do so as to Christ. 
And in fact, this is the major focus of just about every command he gives us because it shows up four times. Shows up in this verse. Then in verse 6, it shows up we're to be like slaves of Christ. Then in verse 7, we're to do things as to the Lord, not to men. And then in verse 8, he says we will receive things back from the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is the focus, the motivation for what we are to do and how we are to do it. Paul says essentially that that focus on the Lord as our as our motivator ought to transform the way we understand and carry out and execute our responsibilities as employees, as those who work for others. And that really is the great need of Christian workers everywhere is to recognize that they do these things as unto the Lord. There's a there's a parable that um, you may have heard that really I think illustrates this very well. There was a there was a man who was uh, uh, going uh, through Europe uh, in uh, in the 14th century and uh, came across a cathedral that was being built, and uh, and he was fascinated by it. And he was watching for a while, and he went up to the first uh, workman. He says, "So what are you doing?" And the man says, "I'm chipping stone." Oh. He goes over to another man a few minutes later and he says, what are you doing? The man says, man, I'm making a living for me and my family. Good, says the man. And he goes on over to the third man and he says, what are you doing? The man says, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Because that was his perspective. It wasn't just, you know, I'm making money or I got this task. But he understood the larger picture of what he was doing and what it was about, where it fit. It's kind of like a student who's studying. Well, what are you studying for? I, mean, I got to do my homework. Or you take a step up. I want to maintain my A or B average. Ah, we're getting closer. But how about the student who says, I want to improve my mind so that for the rest of my days, I can give myself fully to the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom, so far as it lies within me to do so. Now, oh, there's a student who's got a, a handle on, on the bigger things of life. See how easily these things really begin to touch where we live. The third word is conscientious. We are called to serve conscientiously. Paul says, be obedient to those who are your masters, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And here, Paul's really thinking about a slave who who works hard as long as the master's around. And the moment the master's not around, he's laying down, taking a nap, sitting in the shade, doing whatever. When I was a freshman in high school, I had a, a gym teacher by the name of Mr. Fox. Uh, Mr. Fox uh, decided that uh, everybody in his classes would be in the greatest physical shape possible. So it was not unusual for us to come to gym class and do calisthenics from the beginning to the end. And we would, we would be doing sit-ups and, and pull-ups and push-ups and squat thrusts and jumping jacks. 45, 50 minutes, or until people collapsed. It all depended on which came first. But, I mean, that's the way it was throughout the school system. 
in those days. I mean, people were not afraid of having young people do hard stuff. And the hard people, you know, we benefited from it. But I was always fascinated by the fact that when, by the time we got to doing the push-ups, we'd be doing push-ups. He'd get us down in the, in the position. Then he'd start to count. Down, up, down, up, down, up. Of course, in the gymnasium, he'd be walking around. And the moment he'd walk past a section of guys, he'd be looking at these guys. These guys, they'd stop on the up until he turned his head back. They basically put everything on hold. And that's what Paul is saying employees ought not to do. That we are to work diligently and conscientiously because it is God who has called us to do this work. So even though we may be working at a nothing job, even though our teacher may be a real doofus and not be able to do anything still, we are required by God to give ourselves wholeheartedly to these things because they benefit us and benefit the kingdom of God through us. And this kind of attitude has a tremendous impact, not just in our own lives, but actually bears witness to the lives of others. Hell J. Ockengay was, uh, was an interesting guy, a very, very powerful Christian man, uh, was a, uh, um, uh, a pastor at Park Street Church and then the first president of Gordon-Conwell and Fuller uh, Theological Seminaries. Very sharp man and a uh, world traveler. And uh, once he was in Poland preaching. And uh, while he was there preaching, he got uh, an invitation to visit the Prince Carol Radzivill on his 1,300-acre estate. The prince was, uh, was a big mucky muck in the, uh, in the country at the time. And... Uh, and the prince was showing him around his, his large estate. And all of a sudden he stopped. And he pointed to this, this one guy that was standing over on the side. And he said to Akengay, he says, he says, that man, he says, is the best worker I have on my entire estate. He says, he's also the reason that you're here. Because he encouraged me to invite you. He says, I've never, ever been so positively impressed towards a religion as I've been by this man and the way he has conducted himself in my service. Because the young man was a Christian. And he worked heartily, conscientiously, joyfully for this prince. And then had access to the prince's ear. And eventually exposed him to a man like Akengay. fourth word we might look at is pleasant. Slaves, employees are to serve pleasantly. Actually, Paul says, if you look at it literally, he says, with good will render service. Good will. In other words, we're supposed to go about our task cheerfully, in a good frame of mind. When I go to Williston on Thursdays, one of the great advantages I have is I only work there one day a week. Okay, so, I mean, these poor guys, they slog through, you know, week after week, day after day, year after year, the same environment, the same, you know, you know what it's like on the job. I come and go. I'm a temp, if, if you will. And so I can come with, I can come excited. I can come and greet these guys and love them and enjoy them. And I'm not caught up in, you know, what's going on there. I'm not caught up in the, 
you know, personalities and the frustrations. I just, I'm just free to love them. They count their week by Thursdays. And if I show up on another day, they're quick to say, it's not Thursday yet. And I say, yeah, but I'm going to, you know, make it Thursday today anyway. It is, it is amazing what just a pleasant attitude towards people can have. And Paul says we ought to imbue that with our co-workers. Moreover, he says, believer ought to work diligently because we are assured that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. In other words, an employer may not appreciate or even know the hard work that you do. You don't do it so that you're going to get the raise. You don't do it because you want his applause. You don't do it so that you'll be promoted. You do it because it's right to do. And God wants you to do that. Maybe he's completely ignorant of you. Maybe he doesn't even know you exist. Maybe he's not around. Maybe somebody else is stealing your glory and your thunder by claiming to take credit for what you did. It doesn't matter. No good thing done for the glory of God and in his name will go unrewarded in God's good time and in God's wise disposal. The truth of this is uh, is seen in a story about a missionary couple that was returning from Africa. Been there for 40 years. 40 years in Africa at the time that they were there. It was the early to mid uh, 20th century. And uh, it was a it was a hard life. Coming back, they they got to the dock and they saw thousands of people on the dock. And the reason there were thousands of people on the dock was because Teddy Roosevelt was also on the ship. He had spent uh, two or three weeks uh, on a on a big game hunt in uh, uh, in Africa, and he was returning. and And these people had all were all turning out to see him. And, uh, and the husband was just a little bit frustrated. And he basically, uh, he said, you know, here we are. He said, it doesn't seem right. We give 40 years of our lives to, you know, to promoting the, the kingdom of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And nobody is here to greet us. And this guy is off blowing animals away. And he comes back and everybody is here to cheer and greet him. Well, you know, they, they went to their... Uh, uh, their hotel, and as they were getting ready for bed, they you know, they customarily prayed together, and they began to pray. And you know, husband confessed his his uh, his envy, and uh, went on. And uh, when they were done, and they they really felt as though God had had said this to them: Do you know why you haven't received your reward yet, my children? You're not home yet. You know, they thought they were home, but they weren't home. And the rewards are not here, but there. Paul now moves in verse 9 to uh, the duties of masters, employers. And he treats this really briefly. And the reason is it's not far to see because the very first thing he says, masters do the same things to them. In other words, if you want people to treat you respectfully as your employers, as an employer, you ought to treat them respectfully. If you want sincerity, be sincere. 
If you want them to be conscientious, you ought to be conscientious. If you want them to be pleasant, full of goodwill, good cheer, then you be likewise. Did you know that this kind of thinking has actually made it to, uh, uh, to management books? It's actually being practiced in enlightened management. And, uh, and where it is, the relationship between labor and, uh, and management is actually often very good. Why? Because they're being treated as people, respectfully. Paul adds something very important for those in positions of authority. And we're all, we're all likely to fall off the wagon here. He says, remember, he says, there is no partiality with him. You're not any better than the people who work for you. You are not. God knows that. And you ought to as well. And this isn't just a, uh, this isn't just how you treat somebody. This is really has to be an attitude of the heart, a real recognition that other people are just as valuable and have as much meaning and purpose as you do, no matter who they are. R.C. Sproul shows uh, how easily both of these principles, that is, uh, equal treatment and uh, equal value, uh, can, uh, can go by the way. He was doing research for uh, his book, uh, The Search for Dignity. And uh, in there, there was a discussion of, uh, of this phrase, dropping his head. And he was, uh, he was trying to figure out what this, this phrase meant. It, it came from management-labor relations, you know, uh, employer-employee relations. And it might occur in a sentence like, uh, the supervisor came in, sat down, and dropped his head. And nobody had explained that to him, and so he was trying to figure it out. And... Uh, one day he was doing some, uh, some observation in a hospital. And uh, he was basically looking at the nonverbal communication between doctors and nurses and, and other uh, uh, people in the hospital. And uh, he wanted to see uh, what, what these uh, nonverbal communication uh, actually communicated. And he said it was really fascinating. He says, uh, you know, you could see some, uh, some nurses working, but the moment a doctor walked up, they perked right up because he was at the top of the food chain and, and they knew that. And so they, they were very respectful and animated and, and serving and, uh, and whatever else they needed to be. And uh, then he said, while Sproul was watching and just thinking about that, he happened to notice this guy coming down the hall pushing a laundry basket. And he recognized immediately that, uh, that this guy was at, uh, at the low end of the totem pole, okay? Uh, he was just, he was a custodian uh, in, the, in the place, and he was, uh, you know, it was his job to clean up. He said, but this guy was just really happy and just greeting everybody as he came. And, uh, you know, he, would, he was obviously the kind of man who was just brimming with uh, the kind of things that we've been talking about that an employee ought to have. And uh, Sproul says he watched with great interest as this woman who had been uh, with the doctors, a nurse, comes out and she, she's moving towards this guy as he's pushing up and he sees her coming and he lifts his head and gets a smile on his face and you, you know how it is, you just kind of acknowledge another person. And 
The moment he begins to do that, he says, she dropped her head and looked at the floor and walked right past him as if he didn't exist. Sproul says that was the moment he understood what dropping the head meant. It meant that there was a refusal to acknowledge another person. A refusal to see them as valuable or meaningful. You just ignore them. Now you and I never do that when we see bums panhandling on the street, do we? No, we never do that. We all do that. Anytime we don't want to be bothered by someone, whatever our justification might be, we will drop the head. We disconnect from their humanity. Paul says this is wrong, brethren. This is wrong. And especially because you and I in the workplace, this stuff takes place all the time. And and we have a most unique opportunity, no matter whether we serve as employees or employers, to treat others as valuable, as meaningful, as people, showing them love and respect and generosity and care. And that, That pleases God. Nineteen seventy-four, I picked up Studs Turkle Turkle's book, Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. It's a fascinating book if you've never uh, you've never read it. I mean, he really did capture how people think and feel about what they do. But it was the introduction, the first words he writes in the book that are so compelling to me and caught me so off guard. Listen to this. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fist fights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all, or beneath all, about daily humiliation. How many millions of people feel that way about work? How many of you, maybe in your past or maybe even today, feel that way about the work God has given you to do? This, brethren, is the place that you and I have an opportunity to inject a truly revolutionary ethic into the relationships that we have with those around us in the workplace or in school. Wherever it is God has placed us. We have an opportunity to love others. And to care. To be real and genuine. To be what we are. 
by the grace of God. And in that, affect people deeply and perhaps have them see that the way out is, is, is not by having you know, some sort of power in the workplace, but by having the power of Christ invade their lives so that they might find their way through this life in the best way possible. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are, uh, we are challenged by these things. As we so easily fall into the same uh, habits and patterns as uh, those with whom we work, no matter what our uh, position is, and yet, Lord, you, uh, you call us to, uh, to act differently there in order to demonstrate the transcendent richness and value and blessing of the biblical ethic and the reality of Christ in the life. So that others, Lord, might see and, and yearn for it and turn to Christ and find it. We pray that wherever we find ourselves uh, this day, tomorrow, next month that we would by your grace do everything we possibly can to elevate the place that we work the place that we labor in a way such as we found here to the glory of God the furtherance of Christ's kingdom we pray Amen